0: All right. Our staff had a lot of fun doing the bumpers for our series on relationships, the tug of war of relationships, or the relationship tug of war. And you have to laugh because you know relationships can get messy sometimes, friendships, family. But last weekend we took a pretty serious look at French, or excuse me, at relationships. In particular, we looked at hate as it is part of so many relationships and such a big part of our culture these days. And we said, you know, what is the cause of hate? We kind of looked back at the beginning, the book of Genesis, to see how hate made its way into creation and has affected all of our lives. And as we did that, I encouraged you to kind of sketch out with me the theology behind Genesis and the cause of hate. And I said to all of our students, that is our children and students up to ninth grade, that if you brought back your sketch this weekend you could get some ice cream. And so we've got the ice cream available to you out in the commons area. There's a big chest out there with ice cream in it. Just show them your drawing. If you forgot your drawing, uh, I'll take it at your word and say, hey, I did, I just forgot it. And we would appreciate no parents posing as children, all right? You may act like a child, but it's only for those kids and those up to ninth grade. And I wanted to show you uh, how effective uh, drawing with Dale is in instilling truth in kids' lives. An eight-year-old showed me his drawing last weekend after service, and I looked at that and I thought, my goodness, this is like graduate level theological sketching right here. And I was so proud of him for what, for what he did. So let's give it up for all of our kids and students. They're very bright. Now, what I want to do is, before we talk about the cure for hatred, I, want to, I just kind of want to recap, okay, what is the cause for hatred? And again, we will draw it together, so if you want to join me, you can do that. But we started last weekend by saying that God has always been, and that God created Adam, put him in the garden, remember, and then God created Eve and put her in the garden. As I said last weekend, if in any way this resembles someone, it's purely coincidental, and uh, God said that they had been created in his image and likeness. And we refer to a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that the image and likeness of God can be summed up in two words. And that is freedom and the word for. Freedom for. Freedom for a relationship with God and freedom for a relationship with each other. And it says, and they were naked and not ashamed, which means they were totally innocent. They didn't even know they were naked. They, they just knew of God, they knew of each other, and there was just absolute innocence. There was no fear of being violated, threatened, or hurt in any way. It was a beautiful, beautiful place to be. And in the midst of the garden, God put two unique trees. One called the tree of life, the other the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to the first couple, our first parents, you cannot take the fruit from those trees. Any of the trees have all the fruit you want but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat the fruit of that, he said, you will die. Which is interesting because Adam and and Eve had no idea what the difference was between life and death. Just like they had no idea the difference between what was good and what was evil. And God's point to them was simply, I want you to trust me as your source of life. And I want you to trust me as a source of life good and evil. I want you to leave morality. I want you to leave all that up to me. Don't mess with it. Just obey me. Just obey me. And so what we said is that God therefore gave them limits. And God's limit or limits is always, all right, always his word. Obey my word and you'll experience tremendous freedom. Well, into the garden comes this creature called a serpent. And a serpent says why don't you take that freedom that you have for God and for each other and why don't you use that freedom for yourself? Why depend on God, depend on yourself. You can be your own God if you take from that tree, if you disobey God. And then you'll be your own source of life. You'll have your own idea of what is good and what is evil. And Adam and Eve did what they weren't supposed to do. They took what didn't belong to them. And we've been suffering the consequences ever since. And as their children, we all have that nature in us. We all want to be gods. We all want to be in control. We all want to live by the limits we choose. And we'd like to impose our limits on others as well. But what we hate... There's the word. What we hate is when anybody else limits us. So hatred comes out of the sense of I want to be God. Hatred is a response to what I perceive as a threat to my being God. Hatred is about me feeling superior to another. Hatred is about me getting what I want, including you if I want you. So we're at war. We're at war with God. We hate God because, you know, God limits us. Death is a limitation. God limits us because he has his word, his truth, and we don't always agree with his word and his truth. And by the way, when I say hate, you know, we have a tendency to think of hate in its worst uh, expressions, murder, rape, things like that. They're horrible. But hate isn't always on the extreme side of expression. Hate, as we'll see, pretty soon can be subtle. Hate means to have ill will towards another. Ill will towards another. So we hate ourselves sometimes, don't we? Sometimes we have ill will towards ourselves. I'm not as smart as I wish I was. I'm not as good looking as I wish I was. I'm not as prosperous, as successful as I wish I was. And so we hate that about our own limitations. And sometimes we try to overcome those limitations with various methods, procedures, etc. We hate others. It could be our spouse, could be our, it could be our children, it could be our parents, it could be our coworker. it could be our boss. It could be people we don't even personally know. It could be you know, politicians, it could be celebrities, it could be sports stars. I mean, I- any number of people. It could be another ethnicity, it could be another color, another race. We hate. We hate society sometimes. We hate religion sometimes. We hate political systems sometimes. We hate forms of government sometimes. We hate maybe perhaps sexual orientation sometimes. We hate, we hate even the environment. We hate the limitation of the environment. We hate hurricanes and tornadoes. And if you live in Minnesota, mosquitoes, right? Anything that threatens us, anything that we think might take away something from us in our own little space, and our, our being our own little God, we hate. We have ill will toward them or it or that. And so the question becomes, how do you cure this? How do we get past this hatred that infects our lives so easily? The answer is very simple. We need to get back into a right relationship with the creator. We need to get back into a right relationship with God. And the good news is God has made it possible. He doesn't owe it to us, but he loves us. And so though we rejected God in the garden, God's made a way back in the garden, so to speak, for you and for me. But in order for us to enter that relationship with God, in order for us to get things right again, we have to practice, and I'm just going to throw this little phrase out, we've got to practice what I call soul nakedness, or we need to get soul naked. We need to bear our soul. We need to become honest with God. See, what do you mean by soul naked? I'm talking about removing the cover of pride. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Did you know that? Isn't it funny how we hide things from each other and we think we can hide things from God, but nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything, everything about you and everything about me is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if God already knows everything, God's just waiting for us to own up to it. Remember Adam and Eve, God came looking for them. He gave them an opportunity to be naked in front of him, to admit they were wrong, to be remorseful. But what did they do? In their shame, in knowing something was missing, they hid themselves in their pride and they blamed God and they blamed each other for what went wrong. They blamed the serpent. It was everybody else's fault but their own. So to get so naked before God is not to blame anybody else, it's just to admit to God, yeah, I'm messed up, and I struggle with hate in my life and other kinds of sin in my life. God, I'm not going to hide anything from you. How do, we, how do we take the cover off, so to speak? Look what it says here in Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. Would you read it aloud with me? Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy." So let's sketch it out in another drawing, just kind of get a picture of this, all right? Did you hear that tear? that bother you? It bothered me. It's like when somebody drags their fingernails on a chalkboard, Ooh. all right? So what does it look like? Well, we have God, okay? We have God who then makes a way back for us, all right? in relationship to him, and relationship to others, and he gives us a tree of life that he wants us to partake of. So we mean tree of life. Well, the tree of life that God wants us to partake of looks like that. It's the cross. It's where his son Jesus died for our sins, where he was nailed to the cross for you and for me. God says, I want you to come. This is us kneeling. And I want you to Bear your soul. I want you to get naked with your soul. I want you to confess. I want you to uncover your sinfulness. And I want you to accept what I have done for you that I love you, that I've forgiven you, that I want to show you my mercy. And as you lay yourself open to me, as you put your faith in me, my son reconciles you back to me so we can have this relationship with one another so that you can move back into freedom, right? Freedom for a relationship with me and freedom for relationship with others. Just like I had always planned for you in the beginning. But God also says, in order to enjoy that freedom, you have to then observe the limits that I place in your life, and God's limits are his word. So in essence, God is saying, when you keep my word, and you trust in me, you'll have tremendous freedom, again, in your relationships with me and with others. What does it really mean to confess to God? You know, our, in our church, we have a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. We meet on Tuesday nights. It's for people with addictions. But what's kind of strange about that ministry is everybody here should be in that, should be in that ministry. Because everybody here is an addict. We're addicted to something called sin. Hi, I'm Dale, and I'm a sinner. All right, so those of you who understand 12 steps, you know what that's all about, right? And when you say, hi, Dale, what are you admitting? You're admitting you're a sinner too, right? We're all sinners. But I love what it says in the 12 steps. It says, we admitted we were powerless over our addiction, our sinned addiction, and compulsive behaviors. that are lives that become unmanageable. That is something you should pray every day. Show up at the cross, God, my life's unmanageable. And sin has power over me. I need you. I need your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, your power working in me. Secondly, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's Jesus Christ. And thirdly, it says we made a decision. That's that freedom that God gives us for him. We made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over the care of God. Man, if you can do that, it is one of the most purging, one of the most peaceful experiences you can have. That's what we need to do every single day. But it's not just about getting right with God. Look at this. We need to get back in a right relationship with others as well. Because our hatred is not just projected toward God, it's projected toward others. And when I project my hatred toward someone else, it's like I'm hating God. That's why hate is wrong. Because God loves that person I hate. Christ died for that person I hate. How can I hate them when he cares so much for them? I don't have to agree with them, but I have no right to hate them. I've got to get in a right relationship with that person. I want to be in a right relationship with that person. You say, well, I don't hate anybody. And a lot of us probably do believe that we we don't hate anybody, but that's because we misunderstand how insidious and subtle the sin of hatred is. You know, when, when you get sick, sick sometimes, you don't know why. Start, you start feeling run down and loss of energy, and you can't figure out why, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, let's do some blood tests. And the blood tests come back, and the doctor says, here's what's going on. you got this virus in your body. You've got this parasite. You've got this cancer in your body. You can't see it, but it's there, and it's, it's, just, it's just sucking the life out of you we got to deal with that. we got to deal with that. Same thing is true with hatred. It can lurk in our life, and we don't even know it. Because we don't think of certain attitudes as hate, but they are. So we're going to take a couple of spiritual blood tests here and find out the kinds of hatred we sometimes experience in our life. Here's the first one, found in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17. He says, do not gloat. Another way of saying that is be happy. When your enemy falls, when they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. So in essence, what that proverb is saying is that ill will, which is hatred, is the same as being happy over somebody else's unhappiness. Have you ever been happy over somebody else's unhappiness? I have, I'll admit it. Anybody else admit it with me? Yes, we all have. It's, you know, our our ex or our boss or a co-worker or a neighbor or another kid at school or somebody we don't even personally know, but we can't stand who they are. We don't like what they stand for, a celebrity, a sports star, a politician or, or you know, whoever it is. Somehow we feel hurt by them. Somehow we feel offended by them and and, and then one day we find out that they've, you know, they've lost their marriage or, or we find out they lost their fortune or we find out they got indicted or we found out that they really hit a patch of bad luck. And deep down inside of us, we go, yes. Ah, <sighs> feels good. They got what was coming to them. That's hate. That's hate. If I'm happy over somebody else's unhappiness, that is a form of hate and it is therefore detestable to God. Is there anybody you feel that way towards right now? Or is there anybody you're kind of looking forward to that day when they slip on the ice, so to speak? Let's look at another form of hate, all right? It says over in Proverbs 10, verse 18, whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. Now, let's look what it says over in Psalm 101. It says, whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. What does it mean to slander? It means I I go to you and have a conversation with you about somebody I know, and when I talk about them, I don't talk about them in uplifting and nice ways. I rip them. I criticize them. I tear them down. God says that's hate, and we do it all the time, don't we? We do it at work. We do it, you know, in the neighborhood. We do it in our family. And sometimes, as parents, we set a horrible, horrible example for our kids. The way they hear us talk about other people gives them license to think they can talk the same way. We hear it on sitcoms, on the media constantly. We certainly see it in the 24 hour news cycle. We certainly see it these days, you know, in terms of politics and, oh, it's so ugly. It just, we begin to actually think it's okay for us to do. You can't talk about somebody to somebody else if you're going to tear it down. You know, and as Christians, we try to couch it in terms like, well, I have this discernment about this person. <laughs> or, well, you know what? Uh, this is a prairie coast I want to share about this dirty rat with you. And it's not. It's just slander. Let's just call it what it is. It's slander. And it's in our nature to want to do that. And it's wrong. And it cripples our lives, and we don't even realize how it cripples our lives. And when I was thinking about that, I I realized that, you know, maybe one of the reasons why we struggle sometimes spiritually to know the vitality of God's presence in our life is because we're harboring this hate down here in our soul that we don't think is hate. And so we don't see God at work in our lives. We don't see God at work in our church. Now, I was thinking about a passage of Scripture in James chapter 5 that we will use when we pray over someone for healing. In James chapter 5, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And I hear a lot of people complain, you know, why doesn't God heal today like he did in the New Testament or like we hear about in India or in Indonesia or other parts of the world? And, And people I personally have met and talked to that they see miracles happening. Why don't we see them? And I think maybe the reason we don't see them is because we're harboring sin in our life, especially hate. So look what it says. It says, therefore, confess your sins, not just to God, but to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why is it powerful and effective? Because confession happened. We got right with God and we got right with each other. So, I gotta be willing to get right with God. I gotta be willing to get right with others. There is no place in the truly born again Christian's heart for hatred towards anybody, towards any human being. No matter who they are, no matter what part of the world they're from, no matter what they've done, there is just no room for hatred in our hearts toward them. There's no room for hatred in the hearts of Christians toward Christians. Jesus said in John 13, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If so you have what? Hatred toward one another? No. Love toward one another. But listen carefully. Because the challenge that I face sometimes, because there are some things in our culture, there's some things that I see happening in evangelical churches today that I totally disagree with, that I feel very strongly against. I have to be so careful in my feelings against that that I don't let it Turn into then a right to hate somebody. Jesus said in the latter times, he said in Matthew, he said, people will hate you for living by the limits. People will hate you for honoring and keeping my word. Why do people hate us sometimes when we, when we, when we believe in God, when we believe in Jesus, when we believe what he has said about morality and all kinds of things? It's because they feel the limit of that and you're believing that, you're standing for that, feels like you are judging them and imposing that on them. And so they hate you for that. You've got to be careful in those moments that you don't then turn around and do the same thing back. You also have to be careful you don't take the word of God and use it as a club to beat people with either. But take your stand, be firm in what you believe. I was reading in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9 this past week, and in and, and, and verse 9, the New Living Translation, and i give you a paraphrase, it in essence says, I can't make you firm if you don't take a firm stand. So take a firm stand on the truth, but you can't hate people when you do that. They may hate you for it, but you can't hate them, and you can't use it in a hateful way. These are interesting days that we live in, aren't they? Stand firm on the truth, live by God's limits, but bear love even towards your enemies. We'll see that in just a, just a moment. So having that in mind, uh, I'm gonna talk a little bit about how insidious hatred can be in our lives and now how we can keep it from, from growing in our lives. Once I recognize it all right, I, I, and I deal with it, I've gotta continually watch out because it wants to fester in my life all the time. It's just, it's like, you know, it's like God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's just looking for a time to take advantage of you. So how do I make sure hate doesn't happen in my life? Well, Tim Keller in his writings gives a couple suggestions. He's not necessarily talking about hate, but I want to kind of apply it that way. He says, one of the first things we have to do is we have to resist this thing that we have in us of superiority, We have to resist this attitude of superiority. I think it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, if you get rid of superiority, you can get rid of race problems. Because racism is based on a sense of superiority. Nobody here is better than anybody else. Did you know that? Nobody. I'm not better than you, and you're not better than me. Nobody's better than anybody else. We're all human beings created in the image and likeness of God. And some of us have really messed up our lives, and God's patiently waiting for us to repent and come back. I have no right to, to hate anybody, and yet it is our nature. Listen, it is your nature and my nature to constantly compare ourselves to others. Why do we do that? We immediately see somebody and we size them up, don't we? How many of you admit you do that? We do it all the time. We don't even know them. We size them up. And how do we size them up? We compare ourselves to them and we look for defects in their lives, whether they are defects we make up in our mind or literal defects, we look for them so we feel better about ourselves and that gives us a a sick sense of superiority. We just like, we are programmed to do that. It's like, you don't have to learn that. It just happens coming out of the womb. We do it all the time. I do it to you, you do it to me. We have to figure out how we put an end to that. Listen to what it says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 12. It says, whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. The word deride there means to put down. In the Hebrew, it's actually put down with a heart. Heart's not in our translation, because we think of heart, we think of emotions heart in the Hebrew means your mind, your will, and emotions. So the writer's saying, how dare you with your whole being put somebody else down and think you're better than them. And we do it all the time. I don't know if you ever watch cartoonists when they draw, but when cartoonists draw people, celebrities, sports stars, or... Um, politicians They have a tendency to accentuate certain things about their, about their features that they think are funny or that kind of stand out or they're odd. So I'm gonna do a cartoon of me, all right? That's a safe one, all right? So I'm not a cartoonist, by the way, but you know, if I was doing a cartoon of me and I wanted to point out a, a certain feature, I might draw something that looks a little bit like this, all right? All right? And emphasize, well, there's my glasses, all right? Emphasize the big head, like a light bulb. All right? Right? It's obvious. I'm bald, okay? Big forehead. It's there. I accentuated that, right? All right? Say, so why did you do that? Why did you do that? Because we do that to each other all the time. We draw cartoons in our minds of each other. We see, we see the things in other people that, that we don't like or that are odd, and, and then we, we say, well, I don't, I don't act like that. I don't I don't speak like that. I don't read that. I don't look at that. I don't hang there. I don't do that. I'm so much better. But we would never say it. It just happens in us. What do you do do when you have an itch? What do you want to do? Oh, come on, please. When you have an itch, what do you want to do? You're from Minnesota, for Pete's sakes. When you have an itch, you want to? Don't scratch that itch. When, When you find yourself sizing somebody up, stop. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Refuse to think of another person as better than you. If anything, when you look at another person, ask yourself, not how are they better than me? That's the wrong thing to do. Just ask yourself, how can I lift this person up? How can I I make this person feel better about who they are and how God feels about them? Because I'm good. I know how God feels about me. He loves me unconditionally. I got up this morning, the first thing I said is, God, thank you for loving me just because you choose to love me to counter all the negative news in my mind about how I don't deserve to be loved. Secondly, we gotta hurry, okay? Secondly, release people from liability. Release people from liability. Release them from any debt you think they owe you because of what they've done to you. That cures hatred as well. Proverbs chapter 11, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 28 says, do not testify against your neighbor without cause or use your lips to deceive. Do not say, I'll do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay that man back for what he did. In other words, don't ruminate about what somebody's done to you because when you ruminate about what somebody's done to you, what they did to you always gets bigger. You notice that? The more you think about what somebody said or did to you, Or you heard they said and did to you, which they may never have said or done to you, it just becomes a huge cloud over your head. What you end up doing is you exaggerate it. What happens in your mind, we know this psychologically, we know this, we just know this about the brain itself, is the more you exaggerate something in your mind, you actually begin to believe it. You begin to respond to it as though it were true, and you create a debt that somebody can never repay because you've made it so huge. So what do you do? You just refuse to ruminate on what's been done to you. You just change your thinking. You focus on good things. Isaiah 26, three, I'll keep him in perfect peace. whose mind is saved on me because he trusts in me. Third thing you do to cure uh, hate in your life is you choose to overcome evil, other people's hatred. You choose to overcome it with good. And that goes back to what I said earlier. I'm not going to respond to hate with hate. And that's what's going on in our culture right now. It's what's going on in social media right now. It's ridiculous. Somebody else's hatred does not justify me being hateful back. Jesus didn't respond that way. He was hated. And the hatred of others put him on the cross. And even on the cross, does he respond with hatred? They say, Father, I hope you get even with these people for doing this to me. I am the son of God after all make them burn in hell, cause them to suffer. No, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Man, that's the essence of love, isn't it? So listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, hate for hate, Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, so forget about the other guy, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, even though they may be at war with you. I added that last part to give you a translation. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. In other words, don't you worry about revenge, let God deal with it. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil and hatred. I'm adding this in hatred in the culture. But overcome evil and hatred with good. Now, be careful here. Because in essence, what we're being taught and told here is rather than you seeking to be the judge and the avenger, let God do that. And If you can know that God's going to do that, then you're freed up not to be hateful. Makes sense, doesn't it? But be careful you don't have this attitude that says, okay, I'm not going to be vengeful, I'm not going to be hateful, because I know in the end God's going to get him. That's not the right attitude. Which raises a question, Tim Keller asks, And that is when, when does God avenge our enemies? And the answer is he avenged them on the cross when he took his wrath out on his son. The same place he avenged his anger towards you and me for our sinfulness and rebellion. He took it out on Jesus on the cross. You say, well, does that mean that in the end there's not gonna be any settling of the scores? Oh, there will be. But rather than me looking forward to the end for God to get even with the people that have hurt me, I'm supposed to say, God, please, please spare that person like you have spared me from having to meet you as his judge or her judge. Based on what you've done for me, God, show your mercy, your grace, and you forgive them and your forgiveness for them now. I ask you just a really simple question. Is there any hate in your heart right now? I'm I'm sure some some of you have been hurt terribly. And it may take you a while to work through it, but I'm, I'm asking you, don't let it fester in your life. It'll ruin you. It's stealing your freedom right now. If God, who is so just and so holy, can reach down to you through his son, Jesus Christ, and offer you forgiveness and mercy, can't we do that toward others? I'm not asking you to compromise the truth. I'll never ask you to do that. God would never ask that. I'm not asking you to change your position on what he has said in his word. But I am telling you it does not justify you being hateful. And I'm telling you, there's never ever 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 a reason to hate someone. Because of the color of their skin. Because they're a Jew or an Arab, Palestinian, or because they're you know from another culture and country. God created us all. And He values each one of us. It doesn't matter who we're where we're from, it doesn't matter what language we speak, it doesn't matter what color our skin is, it doesn't none of that matters. God made us. He made us to love each other. And we've allowed hate to get in the way. And if there's ever going to be hope for this culture, then we who call ourselves Christians are going to have to set the model and example of what it means to love another person by the grace and the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father God. Uh, it's such a broad topic, God. I, I feel like I have just touched on it and not done justice to it, Lord. But Lord, I ask you to examine in our hearts, and, and I include my heart right now. Show me, show us where there's any deposit, any germ, any seed or beginning of hate in our souls, Lord. And God, rather than justify it, we just get soul naked with you right now and we confess it to you. I ask you to forgive us. God, we need your help in our culture right now as believers. You've called us to live by your limits, you've called us to proclaim your limits. And sometimes we're hated for that, God, and we have no right to hate back. We're supposed to turn the other cheek, we're supposed to go the extra mile. it's hard to do that sometimes God God instead of acting vengefully show us how to act gracefully show us how to act lovingly we pray